Welcome to This Is Revolution. My name is Jean Bajalan, in for Jason Miles on this White Guy Wednesday. Uh, we are going to be discussing a fantastic topic today. We'll be talking about nationalism and the theories of Ernest Gellner. So before we get to that, before we get our power panel of uh, pasty white people on to talk about this uh, interesting topic, I'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to our channel, uh, whether you're watching on This Is Revolution or you're watching on Van Vlog. Uh, your clicks, your likes, your comments down below are always welcome. Well, the comments aren't always welcome if they trigger Jason, but you know, uh, if you want to leave a mean comment, leave it on Vans, uh, stream. Don't leave it on mine. So as I said, we'll be talking about Ernest Gellner. And of course, joining me is our resident deep state expert, deep state Cuba. How's it going, Cuba? Fine. Fine. Just fine. Yeah. We're, uh, running short of the Ewok adrenochrome. But um, I think that my black market sources can arrange uh, enough of a fix. So at the very least, the officer corps won't start um, going through withdrawal until, uh, you know, uh, before it gets dangerous. Well, you know, if you get you miss your Ewok hit, you'll end up smoking Ewok pelts out of desperation, you know, scraping them up off the floor. All kinds of things. I've seen nasty things with Ewoks. Yeah, Adrenochrome is basically Star Wars methadone. You don't want to touch that, but uh, at least it's cheap. And speaking of Ewoks, we have the one and only angry Ewok off the left, C. Derek Vaughn. How are you doing, Vaughn? I'm okay. I'm happy uh, International Women's Day and happy Holly. And happy uh, factory revolution day. Yep. Um, just a reminder, however, don't ruin commie holidays with your liberal crap. That's all I'm going to say. So. Oh, well, you know, the tradition I'm told in Eastern Europe is that you bring ladies flowers on International Women's Day and you also share pickles with them. I had a very good friend at university who studied, uh, studied the history of the Soviet Union. Mr. Harun Yilmaz, and every International Women's Day, he would come around and to all the former Eastern Bloc women at St. Anthony's College, he would provide them with fresh pickles, or as they're known in the Middle East, turshu, which is a variation on the pickle. But I believe, you know, the Middle East and Eastern Europe aren't so far apart, except in, in the Middle East, we make our wrapped things with uh, with um, grape leaves, and in Eastern Europe, you do it with a cabbage. Uh, uh, also, um, in the Middle East, you don't give the flowers to the women themselves. You give them to um, their owners, um, husbands or fathers. Ooh, hoo, hoo, hoo. that's a bit of a racism right there. Actually, when I was in Iraq, uh, International Women's Day was a very big day. Uh, it's, I don't see it being celebrated that much in the West, but certainly in the Middle East, uh, even among relatively conservative people, they, you know, they, they have Women's Day events and all the politicians dutifully come out and celebrate Women's Day. Although I did notice. It's a glorious uh, celebration <coughs> of property. Oh, 
Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, talking about uh, um, socially conservative Middle Eastern countries, I had the great misfortune to listen to Morning Joe this morning, where Mika was telling us all about a very exciting conference that they'd had on women's empowerment with Secretary Clinton and former CIA asset Gloria Steinem um, held in that bastion of progressive women's rights, Abu Dhabi, the gateway to the world. I, I could just envisage this thing, Secretary, all these women, you know, they're fighting for equality. All of the women are on stage. Yeah, all of the women are on stage, perhaps. Uh, Madame uh, Zelenskaya, or I don't know how they say it. Zelenskaya. Zelenskaya was there too, you know, so it was really a fantastic event. I, I, I'm, I'm really sad that I was unable to attend. I, they would have let you in the building because you're not a woman, but um, they wouldn't true. have let you on stage. Fortunately, I was put out of my misery when my son decided to yell at my Alexa to play the robot version of um, Baby Shark. So, you know, I, I did not listen to the end of everything. Well, today, with, you know, all this faffing about that we've done at the beginning, the foreplay, um, we wanted to talk about Ernest Gellner. So, you know, perhaps we'll go into a bit about who Ernest Gellner was in a bit, but we wanted to talk about him because he was, uh, he died in, I think, 1995. I, I, I don't know exactly, but he died in the 90s. But he was one of the leading theoreticians of nationalism during the 20th century. Uh, he was a pioneer of a school of thought on the study of nations and nationalism that posited that nations were not ancient constructions, but rather uh, linked to modernity, a product of modernity, which at the time he was writing in the 1960s was not the widely held belief. There, was, uh, there were proto-modernist ideas to a certain degree, but there was, you know, many nationalists uh, posited a historical con continuity between modern nations and earlier political communities. So I wanted to give, before we get into our discussion, a brief outline of Gellner's theory. So Gellner was a philosopher and he outlines a lot of his ideas in 1964 in a, in, in a work called Thought and Change. And he came to the idea that uh, nationalism and nations were a product of an uneven process of global modernization, spreading out uh, from the West to different parts of the world. And he linked the rise of nationalism to the question of linguistic culture uh, in the modern world and how uh, the transformations associated with moder modernity uprooted old forms of community, village identities, tribal identities, and cast people into this new urban setting where language emerged as a new axis of identity to replace that of the village and the tribe. So he saw in the cities, we began to see this new, increasingly ethnicized or culturally defined social conflict. It was partly class conflict, but because of the large numbers of peasants coming into the city and this melting pot of different cultures, that conflict often came to be framed in ethnic or national terms. 
And he argued this was in uh, this was part of the nature of industrial civilization. Industrial civilization required uh, a new form of education, a new type of citizen, uh, what he talked about as clerks. And thus nationalism basically came to create nations within the context of modernity. Now he further kind of elaborates on these ideas in uh, another work, I believe it was published in the 1970s, but republished in the early 1980s, Nations and Nationalism, which he defines nationalism in the following terms. Uh, and I shall get a little graphic for everyone to look at up here. Um, he defines nationalism as, nationalism is, a, is primarily a political principle which holds that the political and the national units should be coercent. In brief, nationalism is a theory of political legitimacy, which requires that ethnic boundaries should not cut across political ones, and in particular, that ethnic boundaries within a given state should not separate the power holders from the rest. So he formulates this conception of nationalism, and basically uh, he argues that modern societies represented this new form of literate culture. And nations were not a product of culture or will per se, but a sociological necessity born out of the nature of modern industrial society. And he divides human history into a kind of stages theory where he talks about pre-agrarian, agrarian and industrial uh, civilizations. And he argues that in agrarian civilizations, you can't have nationalism because uh, Culture is often stratified along class. Literacy, which is so central to modern nationalism, is stratified and limited to an elite who have no desire to uh, impart their literacy on the mass of the population. In contrast, modern industrial civilization is uh, requires people to be literate and is also a society which is constantly in flux, in change, where social mobility happens, where the division of labor is constantly reformulating itself. And so even though modern industrial societies are not necessarily egalitarian in concrete terms, ideologically, they create this egalitarianism. And we see the emergence of this in this idea of a generic, generic education, what he talks about as ex-socialization, where education becomes this key link between the state and culture. And this leads to conflict as high cultures from the pre-modern era uh, repurposed for modern industrial civilization, leading to conflicts with other cultures. So we see that in his view, although uh, nationalism used pre-existing cultural diversity, they were primarily a process of uh, response to modernization, response to changes in the labor market, uh, responses to experiences with the bureaucracy where uh, you know people cast out from their villages in the urban centers had this uh, new solidarity based around language which hadn't existed before. So this is a kind of Cliff Notes version of uh, Gellner's uh, theories of nationalism, which are what we might call the high modernist interpretation 
of nationalism and has been an extremely influential theory of nationalism. One which I personally think is uh, has a number of merits to it, but also perhaps reflects uh, Gellner's experience as a German-speaking Jew living in the Czech Republic during the rise of Nazism as well to, to, to his particular sort of uh, approach to nationalism uh, and how it has come to be in the modern world. So, you know, with that kind of brief introduction aside, uh, I want to get people's thoughts on this. Would you like to jump in, Kuba, uh, Vaughn, any thoughts? I think it's interesting that Gellner has to insist so thoroughly that it's industrial civilization. There's, a, there's kind of a famous line in chapter seven of uh, nations and nationalism where he says capital like capitalism seems an overrated category. Um, so it's important to note that while this sounds a lot like um, prior kind of Soviet um, prior Marxist debates around nationalism. And when I say Marxist debates, we, we, we also have to remember that these debates don't really happen until the end of the first international Marx and Engels don't really have a coherent stance on uh, on nations and nationalism. The national question is really something that comes up more in the second international and then um, in the formation of the third and Lenin's answer to it. This book is is interesting because it parallels a lot of that, um, but also make makes is really insistent that it's coming from a different place that like. Um, yes, my typologies of history look a lot like those Marxist typologies of history, but even though I'm not explicitly saying they're not, uh, they're not. So I find that interesting about Gellner. Um, and I think, you know, the this, the particulars of being, you know, a Czech immigrant Jew in Britain in the Cold War probably does play into that somewhat Um I also find it interesting that he is of a category of people in the mid 20th century who start off as philosophers and get obsessed with like relatively burgeoning social sciences because he gets, he basically devotes himself to, um, to social anthropology um, as opposed to the two popular ones now, which is kind of like historical biological anthropology and cultural anthropology. Um, and that really shows up in his theories of, of nations and nationalism. Um, and he considers nationalism, interestingly, a sociological condition first and then a political condition, which is, which is interesting because it's tied into that theory of social entropy that is, you know, industrial society breaks down these bonds. Again, sounds like Marx. You know, it's industrial society. It's not capitalism, damn it. Um, and <clears throat> these bonds, uh, once they start the entropy, tribes either disappear or they become nations. That's what tribes do, according to. There's not enough. There's not enough cohesion and other elements of society to maintain that. But industrial society, not the bourgeoisie, needs. Uh, general literacy and that means that there's a general e egalitarianism at least in terms of like 
well, we need all the workers to be able to read so they can take instructions. And that would help if we're speaking the same language. And it would help if you don't have to learn a language for literacy that's not the language that you speak, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, I, I think that, uh, let me take a, a slightly more empirical um, view. And I think that the Gellner's description resonates uh, a great deal with um, kind of my experience as a, as a Pole, um, Poland being one of the, uh, an, an excellent example of uh, Gellnerian type nationalism and one of those cases where you have the emergence of um, the sociological category of nation and then the political project of creating a state to reflect that sociological reality and the linguistic distinctiveness of Polish from German and Russian, the two languages of its uh, imperial occupiers for most of the 19th century, uh, all of the 19th century, uh, is largely what drives the uh, mass mobilization towards the movement. The, if it were easier, if um, Polish were as similar to Russian as, uh, say, Belarusian or Ukrainian, then conceivably uh, Poland might have been more easily uh, absorbed into a uh, Russophone state. Similarly, if Poles spoke German, then it would just be a provincial region, uh, either in a Catholic Austrian, um, you know, Vienna-centered German polity or a larger uh, larger German national state based in Berlin. But the linguistic condition was absolutely decisive. And for people whose experience of um, nationalism um, domestically comes out of an Anglophone country, that connection between uh, linguistic reality and uh, the, the sociological uh, project of nationalism is much less intuitive. You have multiple Anglophone states, um, multiple Anglophone nations, even. Um, Ireland, perhaps the most rebellious and most um, determined uh, nationalist rebellion within uh, the British Empire, was a largely English-speaking people throwing out another largely English-speaking people, even after generations of promotion of Gaelic, it survives as a vestige. Um, it's very difficult to will a language into uh, existence when the sociological project is there, but the linguistic underpinning isn't. Uh, and those other types of um, nationalist trajectories don't mesh as clearly onto Gellner's case. A similar uh, point could be about the Middle East, where you have different forms of Arabic of um, decreasing degrees of mutual intelligibility, uh, living side by side, and often uh, bifurcated by arbitrary boundaries with governments that attempt to foster uh, a state-driven nationalist project, but um, 
And this is a case where um, his argument that uh, tribes go away uh, might encounter some empirical obstacles because so much of um, political mobilization and even outside of formal movements, um, mass movements and parties, um, the elite work of politics is based on extended family and clan networks among people who speak the same language. So I think that the um, he's describing a situation and he wouldn't be the only only one um, that is more emblematic of a European experience than it is of a general iron law of history. Yeah. I think that's for a lot of these mid-century theorists of nationalism. And I, uh, you know, and the, this is a larger project will probably cut in both directions, go back earlier and more contemporary eventually, but we got to cover these mid-century guys because they're the basis of the current study. Um, I think we had, we, we hit that a lot. I mean, one thing I was going to ask you, Gene, is last time we talked about um, Benedict Anderson's theory, which at first glance doesn't look that different from this, but I think it is. Um, and one of the things that I, I note about this is that and Benedict Anderson's conception of how this happens, even though language is still pivotal and the linguistic construction is still really crucial. And this happens in, in a way where tribes fade, religious identities become less important, etc. Um, the, the, the problems that I have with this is that, well, excuse me, the the problems that I see between Benedict Anderson's conception, which is all about like print cultures and the market of print, and this is more about like, well, there's a shared formal education system, but there's a shared formal education system in a standardized language because you because bureaucrats needed to exist to manage all these capital input flows and and these factories. And prior to that, that's just not necessary and it's not super important that like the Lord and the serf can talk to each other. Um, and that difference seems small, even though they're both tied somewhat into economy, but uh, it, it actually is kind of a big difference in explanation about how this happened. What do you make about that? Like how, how strong should we see the difference between Gellner and Anderson? I mean, I think, you know, obviously they both come out of this uh, modernist side of the nationalism debate that emerges in the 1960s. But uh, whereas I think um, Anderson is at least form attempting to provide a kind of quote unquote Marxist explanation, even though that might be a problematic description you know, Gellner seems to be, you know, very much on the kind of historical sociology, Weberian uh, uh, track of things. And he is very much focusing on it, not so much as an ideological uh, structure, but as a sociological necessity born out of the requirements of modernity. And I think there certainly is something, something to that in that 
you know, there are certain conditions brought about by um, by the transformations associated with modernity, uh, in, in industrial civilization, as as he calls it, that creates this uh, basis for nationalism. And you know, the key people for Gellner are the, I mean, are the intellectuals in the city, right? They they are the main actors. So. Um, I think uh, Anderson is providing a kind of more extended uh, history of nationalism from a historical perspective, whereas Gellner is trying to have a general theory of nationalism, right. which I think is an important yeah. distinction. It mm -hmm. is There may be specific nationalisms with their specific stories, but he's providing this kind of almost trans-historic explanation for the rise mm -hmm. of nationalism located in this kind of nexus of industrial civilization and the requirements of industrial civilization. And I certainly think when we look at national movements in particular, uh, stronger national movements uh, tend to emerge when sociological conditions have ripened for them for, for a type of mass politics to take place. Well and uh, I'd like to chime in on something that the chat brought up. We missed the issue of uneven development, which mm -hmm. I think is very salient here. Um, the tendency in, uh, to uh, paraphrase Gellner, it's not that uh, nationalism itself is a prerequisite of modern modernity, but rather that modernity tends towards homogenization. It tends towards the um, dissolving of uh, the web of local and hyper-particular connections that constrain individuals to particular places and uh, situations towards freeing them into good liberal market, citizen, however you want to describe them. Uh, individual level actors that can be fed into um, larger uh, productive enterprises that uh, themselves have to be more liquid than the feudal structures that are purportedly timeless. Um, it's part of rationalization. And the most rational configuration for um, the human population in this particular um, course of development would be a single global nation state with a single global language where those individuals could um, move through um, the maximum stage uh, and be put into the place where um, it, their labor could be best taken advantage of. The What happens under uneven development is that in some places like the UK, where you have industrial civilization coming early, you do wipe out Welsh, you wipe out Cornish, you wipe out Scottish, you wipe out Irish as um, languages and um, to the extent that they could get away with it politically um, as uh, ethnicities to create the, the one British national project. In, but in areas where those local bounds um, persist longer and coexist for a time with 
the development of modernity in cities, you have the persistence of um, linguistic uh, variation, which then provides a um, not only a pretext, but also a practical um, tool of mobilization for the resisting side and a practical impediment to the dissolution of local particularness. But um, in defending the local particularness of Poland against, say, uh, the German Empire or Russia or uh, the Habsburg uh, uh, monarchy, you dissolve the particularities within Poland. Um, Mm -hmm. You don't, and so you don't have a universal solvent creating a single unified humanity that can work at any factory for any bureaucrat. But instead, you have um, the that merger of um, social groups occurring within those historically contingent lines based on an initial distribution of linguistic populations together with um, whoever has the mass and the power to um, form that precocious state. To put it another way, I mean, you know, very simply, if we take the modernist argument, it's not nations that make nationalisms and states, but it's nationalisms and states that make nationalisms, which is something Eric Hobsbawm said. And I would always add to that, that may be true, but sometimes they make the wrong nation. That is, their policies end up consolidating an alternative identity, uh, creating the sociological foundations for a, 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 a counter identity, a different set of solidarities. And, you know, obviously within the context that uh, Gellner was raised, that's the Austro-Hungarian Empire, where you do have very much this melting pot in the cities of Germans, Czechs, Poles, uh, etc., and mobilization around ethno-linguistic concerns. But I would also say, for example, you know, when we look at a case like Poland, certainly language is one factor that helped to articulate Polish identity. But I would argue another factor is, in fact, the relatively developed a sense of a Polish political identity, that uh, Poland had a state, there was a historical... A king. A king, a state, there was a historical tradition of a Polish state. So po- that Polish nationalism was more articulated than, for example, Belarusian nationalism. Uh, I well, think what's decisive I, I, there is, is, is a political tradition upon which to draw on. Well, I think that um, one way, another way of thinking about it is that nationalism is a new thing that's pretending to be an old thing. And the better it can pretend to be that old, timeless thing, then the more successful it will be at that new thing, at its new, unifying, um, homogenizing business. And um, there's one other uh, element that I wanted to to foreground, which is uh, the importance of language as a technology mm-hmm. in um for social control, for economic production, for cultural production and consumption. And the standardization of language um, is more than um, bureaucrats giving orders to workers. It's also the basis of a, um, of a mass press, of um, a, an 
national level culture that can be shared beyond the vernacular. Um, and without that tool to create and consolidate uh, an, the Benedict Andersonian imagined community, then it would be very difficult to practically imagine the success of um, a nationalist project. Um, and that development requires a lot of the components of modernity, um, things like centralized bureaucracy, mass literacy, the technologies that enable mass literacy, like the printing press. So the there definitely is something to um, the contention that modernism, modernity is a foundational prerequisite for what we call nationalism. But, but when you start <coughs> modernity is going to change the story. I mean, one of the things about this story versus Anderson's story is Anderson's story starts about 100 to 200 years before. Like Anderson's story is going to get you really going with nationalism in Britain and France in the 15th to 16th century. Um, whereas Gellner's story, well, the stuff in Britain has to happen first. <laughs> like, like until you start having industrialization, which is a British-French phenomenon. Um, and it's it's interesting because as we're telling the story, it's clear that they're, they're very similar stories, right? Because on one hand, industrialization is driving this, it's driving nationalisms. Um, nationalisms are in a kind of dialectical emergence with, with nation states. Um, on the other hand... You, you have a couple of things that's harder to explain in the Gellner view, even though in a lot of ways I like the Gellner view more than the Benedict Anderson view because it covers more elements of society. Um, but why, according to Gellner, would Europe, I mean, would, would England and France have done what they did before um, the need for nationally unified polities for a workforce um but after there's an attempt to standardize the language so like you know if anyone's ever studied english you have this like if you if you study middle english which was you know right right when we get the printing press at the beginning of this time period uh i i learned old and middle english in college in quotation marks but as soon as you get a manuscript that's like a few miles away from caxton's library it's like unreadable and i'm like caxton's printing press is unreadable it's like the rules are so different the word choice is so different. i mean it's kind of and just to remind people we're talking about in a space it's like the difference between brooklyn and new york um and it's almost a completely different language um and i think that's that, that's an important thing to deal with. Um, I think it does explain one of the paradoxes that someone in the chat pointed out that, oh, well, it's interesting that capitalism, and I will both say, Anderson's a little bit more comfortable with Canderson. Gellner's really specific that he's not talking about capitalism tote court here. But um, what you see with, with this theory in particular is that it does kind of explain... While you might have both a very individualistic ethos and a homogenization at the same time, because 
collective ethos actually tend to be collected towards small units. It's very hard to be a collective ethos towards like, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people you don't know. I mean, in, in, in a real like sense where it's not just an ideology, right? Like where there's like organic social norms and whatnot. So making people feel like individuals is a good way to melt down the differences within the administrative unit and the administrative unit here is the nation. Um, uh, the, the complications though, I mean, we've already talked about them to some degree. It's very hard to explain a lot of cultural nationalisms this way. Um, uh, yeah, Poland's an example. I think most of central Europe kind of follows this pattern. The Balts, Hungary, right. Uh, even, even, um, the Netherlands, um, you have that very clear even scandinavian countries you have a very clear um um congruency between uh language and nation and national um character but uh, there's one thing that i wanted to bring up with respect to your um your comment about how different dialects could be and now you can you couldn't even read something that was printed um two villages over uh People have all kinds of romantic associations with language. It's the stuff mm -hmm. of poetry, it's the uh, literal method of our thought, of our inner life. But from a brutally sociological, brutally economic, especially perspective, they're just a whole bunch of different ways of uh, it, it's like a, a gajillion different versions of measurement systems. It's yeah. grotesquely inefficient. And it's a matter um, of taste. And yeah, if you, um, you may favor one over the other, one might say that like the metric system is, has the advantage of a uh, certain arithmetic elegance. And you see over time, the elimination of local, hyper particular and perhaps very storied um, systems of measurement with these, with a couple of uh, universal ones. And that process of homogenization, I think the efficiency angle is as important as the social story. There is a um, real cost to preserving um, numerous dialects within a single state even before oh. even if you don't have a um even if they don't provoke political challenges through local nationalisms if you consider um for instance chinese with its um, numerous dialect slash languages that are not mutually intelligible um that does create friction all kinds of friction within right. um, the chinese state and even without any attempt to link those linguistic differences to a particular secessionist political project. Yeah, agreed. And it's also, I mean, another thing is uh, China has an advantage there because its ideogrammatic writing system is comprehensible even if the verbally... Um, you can read even if the vernacular is not acceptable. Right. Well, the, not, uh, well I think there's, there's a couple of points here. I mean... To go to the Anderson argument, which focuses, for example, on the process of vernacularization, 
you know, he focuses on vernacularization in Europe and the printing press. But I think what he ignores is that vernacularization during the early modern period didn't just happen in Europe. We see vernacularization in the Middle East, mm-hmm. a shift away from uh, high languages such as Persian and Arabic towards Turkish being used, as well as uh, Serbo-Croat, Kurdish, becoming uh, written languages during this period. Written versions of like regional (coughs) Arabics, uh, like Masri, Moroccan, etc. And as far as I understand, a similar process happens in the Indian subcontinent with a shift away during this period from the scriptural languages like Sanskrit towards vernacular languages. So vernacularization isn't the kind of X factor uh, that explains this shift towards, uh, you know, towards linguistic nationalism per, uh, per se. I think where I think Gellner is actually strong strongest is in positing this disruption of modernity which he's calls industrial civilization but we could just you know you could, could just call it capitalism we don't capitalism. Have you could call it capitalism and when we look at the early phases of capitalism you know the english revolution and the french revolution this is where we begin to see uh perhaps in not as self-conscious a way pro- uh, processes taking place that lead to the, a kind of standardization and homogenization and this uh, as development becomes increasingly uneven across the world you know this is the model with which to follow right this is the model to follow so a whole load of nationalisms model themselves on the french revolution right a whole load of nationalisms look to german nationalism or, uh, or italian nationalism around the world so we have this one thing Gellner points out, I think in his last book, which I forget what it's called, it's, I think it's just called Nationalism in the 90s. You know, nationalism is not simply a process, a sociological process that takes place within each community, but it is a global process. It the is provided, yeah, it's this, pro, it, it becomes a principle of legitimacy. And we see a world of nations beginning in Europe. You know, it's early sort of iteration in the Westphalian system, in the concert of Europe, and gradually the rest of the world is forced to be incorporated into that system over time, right? There are certainly, uh, and nationalism represents a kind of contradiction uh, in quote-unquote bourgeois liberal ideology in the sense, as you outlined very well at the beginning, Kuba, from a pure universalist liberal perspective, one state, one language, one people, but just as liberalism does uh, cannot fulfill its own uh, promises uh, I- I- in terms of equality, it can't fulfill its own promises in terms of universality, and that universality comes to be mediated through the nation and a global system of nation states, which in progressive historical eras takes over the world. In the Americas and Europe, and then with decolonization. But but let me let me one thing that I want to uh, get out on this is that it's not just imposed on the rest of the world. Right. Um, you have um, because there's a danger in romanticizing um, pre-modern, pre-capitalist uh, societies and polities uh, as though everything were fine there, and then the big bad modern West shows up. Um, for instance, uh, specifically uh, Japan, 
China were very eager um, to enter into that world of nations as on equal footing. And right. it's very well well said what uh, that liberalism cannot live up to its own um, to its own promises of universalism because the requirements of um, hierarchy within capitalist production, um, within exploitation, undermine that universalism with whatever is tactically available to the capitalist, colonizer, imperialist, um, which is often takes the form of um, chauvinism, whether racial or civilizational. Right, which Gellner doesn't deal with so much in the Nations and Nationalism book, and he's actually criticized for not explaining chauvinism. But, but one of the things I think we do have to deal with that I don't think Gellner does properly, I mean, he mentions Canada and Belgium as multilingual states, uh, nation states, but um, China, the United States, India, under conditions of nationalism as defined by all the modernists, aren't nations. They do not have historically unified linguistic groups. Um, they, while the United States did have a, a linguistic um, homogenization, sort of, um, uh, that actually hasn't really happened in in China and in India. India's uh, India's unity linguistically is actually an imperial language, which no one speaks as their primary language. And um, China's is in a writing system that just is really cool and that you don't have to, it doesn't really make sounds in all the language it needs and all the languages that can use it. Um, you know, it's comprehensible. I mean, it's comprehensible in Korean and Japanese who aren't even related languages and don't have the same sentence structure. So like it's, it's, uh, I think that that's a challenge, but I think it's interesting also because it still fits your point, Kuba. All these polities wanted to present themselves, even in their imperial phases when they were like being open about it, like when Mexico was calling itself the Empire of Mexico, etc. They wanted to present themselves as nations and as nation-building projects, even though they don't have any of the characteristics that that uh, that like typify Central European, the European model of uh, yeah, the nation yeah. state. To defend Gallner on this, he would say that, uh, you know, you have these diversity of cultures existing in the world, like a reality of, you know, many different potential. I think he uses the uh, he uses the analogy of garden variety, garden, uh, garden cultures versus wild cultures. Right. And the uh, nations selectively use elements of those garden, uh, those uh, wild cultures to create a garden, right? And I think Galner would probably argue the uh, the question would be with the specifics to, you know, with regards to language, how some kind of formal compromise can be implemented by a state. There could be some kind of historic compromise between different linguistic groups as you have in Switzerland, as you have in Canada, uh, where language still has to be pruned. It still has to be made 
useful for the modern economy, but you can have a multi-linguistic nationalism. In a country like India, constructing nationalism on purely ethno-linguistic grounds would be a recipe for disaster because of the political balance and the diversity of cultures that exist in that country. And I think, you know, other elements of shared identity can be used to forge that identity, even the use of a colonial language, which then provides a basis for common communication uh, across a country. So I think language is important, but its importance can mean different things in different contexts. It's possible, for even Lenin, for example, makes the note that although the rise of nationalism generally tends towards separatism, there are particular cases where different linguistic groups, different national groups will seek to forge a future together within a multi-ethnic polity. And he uses the example of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, where out of fear of the Tsar, various national movements cooperate in a kind of almost in what you might think of as a cosmopolitan nationalism, where they where they are able to differentiate their political nationalism from their cultural nationalism. State as in, team versus state as identity. And then you then you have other cases where nations are managed uh, uh, are imagined in a far more organic way, either racially or in, in a kind of notion of an imposed uh, culture. So I think within particular states, there, there can be different compromises on questions such as linguistic diversity. You know, it's often, you know, it's a fight for the recognition of a language rather than the uh, separation of a state. You know, I think, you know, if you went to Quebec, there'll be about half the Quebecois population uh, very much defending French and think French should be respected, but are like, yeah, we'll stay in Canada. We're proud Canadians. We're the best Canadians. Where there are others who are, are like, screw Canada with, with, with Quebecois. But, you know, there is a Canadian, there is a Quebecois Canadian nationalism that exists, which is just as genuine as much the like Anglican. Scottish Britishness, like Scottish Britishness. Uh, so language is, I think, an important axis to understand. But it, it depending on context, it is not all, all, always the primary axis of nation building. And one thing that we've um, one thing that <clears throat> we've missed going over um, Geller the first time, uh, since he's a liberal or um, not a pure Marxist in any case, um, which not a criticism or disqualifying, quite the contrary. Um, he is open to the idea that um, ruling classes and access to uh, the uh, apparatus of power uh, need not be monopolized by uh, a clique. And one of the demands made by the old 19th century ethno-nationalism is that the linguistic, a linguistic unity be shared between the masses and leaders, that those who um, govern territory should belong linguistically to the community um, that inhabits it. And in a certain way, English can play the role that it does in India, for instance, precisely because it's 
alien to everyone there. So the same role it plays in Nigeria too. Yes, um, and exactly. And this this is a, this is a stark difference from pre-modern societies, where, for example, the Polish aristocracy and the Polish peasant might speak a similar vernacular, but the Polish aristocracy invented an entirely different sort of ethnic origin, the Sumatian ethnic origin, to distinguish themselves from the peasants below. And we see this in a lot of- France lot as well. France yeah, as well. The Franconian myth. And the, in, in Britain as well, the difference between the, the Norman- We are Anglo-Norman. As opposed to- The, the so, Celts. So we, we, see, we see often uh, class is ethnicized in the pre- uh, modern Absolutely, era. yeah. I mean, it, like people from different classes did not see themselves as the same peoples. I mean, this, that sometimes they weren't. Um, but, quite often they weren't, right? The, but um, but with have, the rise of mm -hmm. liberalism, with the rise of capitalism and liberalism, Fraternité. this is turned on its head. There has to be, there has to be a people, and the people should be ruled by members of that people. So even if there are inequalities, that people are of the same origin. And even the reactionary, as you know, as you see in Anderson, even the reactionary regimes of Europe by the mid to late 19th century are uh, propagating these official nationalisms that are re-inventing uh, themselves as not the Tsar, but as the Tsar, as a Russian, where you have an aristocracy in uh, Russia that previously wanted to show itself as cosmopolitan by speaking French, adopting and, Russian. And the contours of xenophobia change in an interesting way as well. Whereas before um, the French Revolution, across all of Europe, the only restriction, and it was actually quite negotiable, um, for aristocratic intermarriage was uh, religion. And but it didn't matter if the Lord came from the Galicia in Ukraine or the Galicia in Spain. Um, it was a class um, appropriateness that meant that they were suitable, um, suitable spousal material. But, um, and the, the idea that somebody would be upset that like um, you have an Italian, you, you might have a particular dislike for uh, a given cultural or geographic group, but um, it wouldn't be the kind of my country or or nothing chauvinism that becomes emblematic of uh, 20th century nationalism, including in places like the United States. Yeah, and I mean, America is an interesting example as well, because um, on one hand, you know, obviously there is a long history of you know, racial exclusion into the, in, in this country. But on the other hand, the American Revolution creates, I guess, a nationalism that is in many ways far more inclusive or at least open or more universal than, for example, Polish or Italian uh, identity. How would, how would we explain that? Well, that's was my point about how America, like the United States, as as a polity, even though it presents itself as a nation, and explicitly goes on to um, 
try to come up with a civic, uh, what was called a civic religion, although they don't mean it as in like a religion proper. They mean it as in like rituals which codify the uh, the revolutionary experience or whatever. Um, which is different from France, even. I mean, right. obviously there's a strong revolutionary spirit in France, but it is intertwined with a kind of north of France cultural chauvinism which was over the course of the 19th century imposed on on the country whereas in america you know i, I can't remember who it is one of those frankfurt school guys you'll probably know this one Vaughn. you know posits the idea that the american revolution is the purest bourgeois revolution in that it you know what is it to be american well it's the constitution and all the cultural paraphernalia really comes later. Like there's 10% of the country speaks German until like everybody goes nuts at Germans during the first world war. But the, the thing about this, there's two ironies to this, and this is an idea I'm going to bring up, but all these modernists, one, they're actually writing at a time where it seems like nations really matter, but they're declining in importance at the very moment they're theorizing them. Um, we could debate, you know, I'm, I'm not, I do not believe we're actually in a post-national world. That's not my point. But we, we could definitely see that the, the threat of incoherence from outside linguistic groups actually goes down mm -hmm. in most of these nations. Um, and interestingly, I think, again, the, the Eastern European experience and the Central European experience is actually very specific here. Because that's frozen because of the, the the particular way nation building does and does not happen in the USSR and unleashed after 1992, when frankly a lot of the rest of the world is over it. Um, the 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 other thing I think we have to ask ourselves about this is we're all hinting around the fact religion still matters in these national constructions, but it's not in this story at all. Like, yeah, <laughs> I mean I think that's. I think that's extremely important. But, you know, when we talk about religion, that's a very protean concept because okay. what religion means today is very different from what religion meant to people, you know, 500 years ago. You know, 500 years ago, it's kind of it's just a way of life. It's the it's, it's the nature of things, whereas in many ways, a lot of quote unquote religious movements they are, in effect, nationalist movements. What is Islamism other than a kind of pan-nationalism that seeks to create a political unit, a modern political unit based on a unit, a cultural unity provided by religion? Right? Actually, I would actually argue that like, if there's this book by Stephen Bruce, which we're not talking about today, but it's on secularization. It was actually arguing that the only place where you see religion really standing up to secularization, I don't mean religion just completely going away but a lot of things that we associate with religiosity like say mega churches or whatever are actually signs of decline like why do you need a system that centralized with that little pastoral care because you're trying to maximize inputs of of tithing or profits uh and minimize cost and why do you need to do that because you're not actually as persuasive uh, pervasive in society to run all these little hamlets and stuff um but there's another another thing there too in that in places where you see strong religiosity uh it they it is 
tend to be tied to nationalism. But again, that doesn't ex- like that's harder to explain the origins. I mean, we were talking about Gellner's like Weberian assumptions, which I agree are there, but it's like, well, yeah, but why are you skipping over all the like Weber Sombart debates about religion and national identity and who created capitalism? Um, etc. You know, um, well, writing in the writing in the 1960s, it seemed religion was on the decline, right? You have it's like the height of modernization theory. You have the Soviet Union, you have across the Middle East, it's not the Islamists who are in power, it's secular nationalists who mobilize religion in, in a very different way, you know, for Arab nationalists. Islam was not the universal religion. It was a expression of the genius of Arab civilization, right? It was so, and religion has always been molded into nationalist political projects from the offset for a variety of different re- uh, reasons. Look at the Balkans. I mean, what's the arguably different... it's what trips off the the the, the transition to na- to nation in England uh, and in France. Like, so, I mean, I, I just, I, I'm not saying that it did actually just, that it's, that it isn't part of the story. Um, I'm saying it is, I think we have to look at it way more dialectically than Gellner does. Gellner's a liberal. It's hard to ask him to look at anything dialectically, let's be fair. Um, uh, and one of the things about Gellner for a liberal, it's amazing how much of his apparatus we as we as Marxists can still kind of understand. And that's because, you know, in some ways it is true that liberalism and Marxism come out of a concurrent movement um, in response to bourgeois society and capitalism, etc. cetera. Um, so I think that's, I think it's a, an important thing to think about. Um, but it also, it, it's interesting how like, Nationalism now versus nationalism in the period that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Nationalism now is almost the opposite thing of what Gellner is talking about. Like nationalism has a tendency to break down bureaucratic boundaries, has a tendency to to um, to complicate polities, but not actually the administration of their of their political economy. And that's something that's radically different than in the 19th century. Now, again, it's hard to hold Gellner accountable for that. That's not what he's theorizing, right? That's not his problem. That's ours. But it is interesting to think about, like, by the time, by the time you get to the nineties, you're really looking at something very different. Um, and I think we've all said, you know, uh, uh, bourgeois society and, and, and the settler nations is, is a very different thing. Um, and that also, what this does in the Middle East is a very different thing. Um, and, but what I find interesting about that, I mean, you know, Gene, you and I talk about the irony of this all the time. What Islamifies, uh, quote, Turkish society, it's actually a nationalist revolution, right? Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, Turkey is the most Islamically homogeneous state in the Middle East. And that's because of, quote unquote, a secular nationalism 
although what do we mean by a secular nationalism? Well, you know, religious identity becomes racialized in a certain sense. In 1895-96, when massacres of Armenians were ta taking place, mass conversion to uh, Islam saved villages. You could convert to Islam and they would leave you alone, right? Or there were cases like that. By 1915, when the Armenians offered to convert to Islam, they still get massacred. I mean, we see a racialization with Judaism. One of my colleagues works on Judaism in the Middle Ages. And, it, you know, there's one phase where they're like, we need to convert all the Jews to Christianity. And then the second phase where they're like, shit, now we don't know who all the Jews are. Right. Right. And we need we need more property uh, and we got some problems here. But then we're going to accidentally like kill most of our middle class talented people. Too, so so religion so. can provide the kind of ideological frontier of a nation because it comes down to this. I mean, again, it's like the it's the limits of liberalism. It's like you have a revolution in the name of the people and then you have to define who that people are. Right. And all kinds of weird cultural traits which had previously not been very important or had had little importance suddenly become politicized in new ways that they'd never been politicized before and history become, comes to be reinterpreted in, in, in new ways that had never been uh, you know n n never been conceptualized before so language is important but i think gellner's overest is overestimating languages centrality to nationalism in general as a theory right because i think getting lost in looking at nationalism as a sociological uh process that's something that happens because of changes in a particular society misses the meta point that it is a global transformation in the way the political order of the world is structured it becomes the vocabulary of international relations so it is uneven right it, 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 it and if you want to be part of that world of nations you have to kind of play by those kind of rules i think the other element missing from this is going to come up when we talk about Havbaum, um because one thing that's coming up a lot is people are talking about like shinto and hinduism and and stuff like that um i am of the minority of anthropologists who think those to talk about those belief systems that way is a nationalist construction and to talk about them as religions to court is also a, a, a modernist understanding well um, i mean like just look at islam right people have this notion of islam as a universal religion and obviously you can draw on elements of the quran to to paint it as this kind of universal equality but for the first 300 400 years of the islamic empire there was well, the first hundred or two hundred years, the Rashidun caliphates, the Rashidun and the Umayyads, they were literally building cities to keep the Arabs apart from the population, and they were treating converts to Islam as second class within their imperial order. Right. So people obviously project on to you know, in the nineteenth century, Islamic intellectuals projected on modern liberalism. And gave it an Islamic code. Like they would say, oh, you know, the Ottoman Empire should have a constitution. Because did you know, in the early Islamic community, they 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 didn't have a king, but they selected their ruler. And actually, constitutionalism is ours. It's our idea. The Europeans nicked it from us. So, you know, like a lot of these ideologies get, um, you know, think about ISIS, right? What is ISIS? 
yeah, you could say it's Islamic fundamentalism, or you could say all these people coming from around the world uh, to fight for ISIS are doing a kind of like copycat reverse American of, revolution. Uh, yeah, a, a reverse American revolution. They're Actually, like, not that reverse because they were both down with slaves, right? Ooh, yeah, see. but not racialized slaves. That's the difference. Um, no, it's and it's interesting actually to think about these uh, like pan-ethnic religious movements, um, but also like Hinduism was part of the national character of India. There's not really even a clear word for that for that religion, and I put that in, in quotations not because I don't think you know there aren't religions, whatever that means. In, in India that you could call Hinduism, it's that there's really multiple ones. Like I, if you've ever studied like Shivism versus like Objecta versus like um, uh, well, Krishnaism, etc., they don't share a whole lot. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I think that the unity within Hinduism may be similar to saying Abrahamic faiths as a single um, religious category. Right. Right. Um, and if we had like a pan Abrahamic empire, then somebody might throw that around. Um, I mean, we definitely see it with with, uh, you know, the American 20th century concept of Judeo Christian, which is like. You know, notice it doesn't include Islam. And also, like, if you know anything about the religion, Islam and Judaism seem a lot more alike than they do Christianity. Uh, Christianity is like kind of the third man out of the of the abrahamic religions right like it's not law obsessed it has some the theological of yeah. the um, religious marx brothers yes it, yeah exactly um and so but that's clearly like a, a construct post post world war ii to kind of you know normalize certain things and well well, it's interesting, too, to see the category of religion um, move from a specific um, confession, uh, a religious confession, a, uh, a, a statement of faith in intangible, real, uh, intangible yet real um, metaphysical entities, right, and uh, that impact the way that you live your life into a kind of civilized versus barbarian category where you can lump in uh, faiths that have fundamentally contradictory metaphysics um, mm -hmm. that into a single team because they are still somehow uh, better than the absence of those, of any metaphysical commitment and often, right? A atheists get it from everyone, right? Um, but also the, the mere paganism or um, barbaric practices of the inscrutable foreigners. Well, and you know, go ahead. Sorry. I think it hit its peak. I think this tendency hit its peak with um, certain third worldist movements, like um, specifically, I'm thinking of Pancasila in Indonesia, where there's basically like five civilized religions, um, which have nothing in common. They include Hinduism and Islam and um, Christianity gets two seats because of Protestants and Catholics. Well, they have the a, last... in Indies, they have Kebatina Islam, where the Quran is just the first rung on the road to enlightenment. Oh, yeah. The, 
at Buddhism is like the the last one, right? Um, yeah, and then um, well, you know what what transforms, what radicalizes. But if uh, you're not one of these, right? Like, um, so, so uh, a modernist Indonesian could firmly embrace the pseudo universalism of Panchasila and be absolutely horrified that a Marxist might not believe in God. Yes, that's well, you know, and also, you know, pre-modern religious communities are often pragmatic, right, in terms of their approach to religion. There's a story from, you know, the Ottoman Empire where there's a Orthodox village and they're being plagued by vampires. So they call in the Orthodox priest. He can't deal with the vampires. So they go, let's try the Catholic. They get the Catholic in. He doesn't do it. Okay, Jews and gypsies now. We're at Jews and gypsies. So they call the Sheikh up and they get the Sheikh <laughs> to come and chase off the chase off the vampires but they don't convert to islam it's like the, the there's a kind of way of life but in modernity i mean you see this in the mid 19th century with islam with the rise of pan islamism which there is an attempt to forge a unity an islamic identity out of islamic communities that historically had been at odds with themselves uh Al-Afghani is a Persian. He calls himself Al-Afghani precisely because he doesn't want to be tied with the Shia brush because for the Sunni, the Shia is perhaps worse than the Christian. At least the Christian is a, a, a person of the book, whereas the Shia should know better and is actually the greater threat to the Islamic community. But there is an attempt to build a pan-Islamic community in response to very specific uh, events, to the polarization of uh, a sociological polarization in which you're seeing uh, the implementation of legal equality, which for Muslims seems like uh, a loss of their traditional status and privilege, and also economic changes that, although not benefiting the mass of the population, are benefiting uh, like a high-profile small elite of Christians who act as intermediaries between the West and uh, the Middle East, and this helps provoke uh, uh, Islamic uh, you know, uh, 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 the reinvention of the Islamic uh, identity, which becomes in different components, a critical component of specific national identities. Well, actually, this is something that is interesting to tie back to the idea of the demonstration effect, right? Like um, there's, uh, to a certain extent, since the end of the Arab golden age, um, Islam has lagged the West in different ways. And you have this repeated cycle of um, rejection of Western innovation, followed by its indigenization and <coughs> the reconstitution of um, fundamental, authentic Islam with those lessons absorbed. It's actually very dialectic. I mean... I would put it a slightly different way. I mean, I don't think before the you know, 16th century, there is any major difference between Islamic and Christian civilization. And there is obviously interaction between both of those things. I think ultimately the quote unquote failure of the enlightenment in the Middle East is a political question. Uh, very specifically, uh, at least in the in the case of the Ottoman Empire, you can see the Ottoman Empire as a Renaissance state, right? Look at uh, Machiavelli. He talks about the Ottoman Empire. Look at their architecture. They're building domes like five meters bigger than the domes in in uh, in Italy to show that to win a bet. 
to win a bet. Exactly. But I think what you have in the, in the Middle East, and I take this from the work of Baki Tezjan, that in the Ottoman Empire, you have a conflict between absolutism and a kind of uh, constitutional popularism. And science and modernity and innovation becomes associated with absolutism. So when the absolutists fail, when they lose political power, so too are a lot of the political, pro- uh, the the kind of cultural and political innovation that takes pl- takes place. So when you know uh, the populists basically shout down the uh, you know shout down the destroy the observatories, stop the flying experiments. They're like mm, we shouldn't be doing all this fancy stuff. It's associated with absolutism. Now, obviously, that's not the only factor. I think also the Ottoman Empire was not a part of the big economic changes brought about by. Uh, the Atlantic uh, trade and and, and the Russia is an interesting paired case because there too, uh, to the extent that you have enlightenment penetration, it's through the enlightened um, despotism yeah. of Catherine the Great, and you'll have uh, popular, mobilized, enthusiastic, um, and you know one could say democratic movements that want to destroy all of the printing presses and shut down the schools for girls. What happened in Persia? The uh, Safavid state collapsed. That's what happened. They collapsed. People, uh, just so people know, Persia... That's a hinge point. Safavids on the the moon. They collapsed. The Safavids, they had to play in the big leagues. Like the Ottoman Empire had a population of 30 million. The Mughals, I think, were like 100 million. There's only like there were only like six million people in Iran, and they had to fight wars on two fronts all the time. So I think they eventually got tired, and then yeah, a bunch of Afghans turned up, wrecked the place up. They did have a revival under the most based Shah of all times, Nadia Shah. Why is he the most based Shah? Well, uh, number one, uh, when the British and the Dutch got too cocky with him, he had uh, he had their how might I put this diplomatically. Their back doors were desecrated in the presence of the court. He also looted the entire Mughal Empire, which my family participated in. I would just like to let people know that the Bajalan clan were there looting Delhi. And the best thing about the looting of Delhi was that uh, they set up a meeting between the Mughal, uh, uh, the Mughal Emperor and, and Nadia Shah. And they set it up in such a way that they did this thing called Taruf, where they made the Mughal emperor say, oh, please take all of my jewels and treasure. You know, you're my guest. And Nadia Shah's like, no, second time, no. And he goes, no, I insist you take all my gold and treasure. And then he took it all and then um, gave everybody three years off from a tax break. But then he went a bit bonkers. He killed his son, uh, blinded his best buddy, and everything fell to bits after that. So... It's because Mossad time traveled back to poison. Mossad, exactly. That's what it's all about, man. Mossad time traveled to, to get fed. But yeah, so basically, I mean, that was way a distraction. Uh, I was about to say, you could tell which one of us uh, studies politics from Eastern Europe perspective, which one of us is a, is a nations theorists of, uh, of the ottomans and middle east and which one of us actually is like a literary scholar of south asia <laughs> um so uh 
one of the things I want to put in though, and it's actually shown up in the comments about these religions. Um, I saw, for example, someone asserting, well, didn't Buddhism come from India? India did not exist when Buddhism was when Buddhism as whatever that cluster of belief sets are, because it's many. I think, um, I think Spencer, who's in the chat somewhere, I think he mentioned the earliest question of the Hindu question is whether it's different from Buddhism. And in fact, that argument has been replayed in Islamic studies uh, over mm -hmm. whether Islam was a heretical sect of Judaism. Or, um, yeah, or a heretical sect of Christianity. That's also a common one. I mean, um, I think I think the consent or a very very poor understanding of um, Hellenistic paganism. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I think I, mean, I, I think the general theory now is that the Quran was written in one period of time. I think the advocates of Hagarism as Islam as a a uh, sect uh, as a Jewish sect. Oh shoot. I think that's been that's been debunked. But what we know as Islam today is not what exists in the time of the Prophet or what exists uh, in the early Islamic Empire. In fact, much of the classical thought of Islam that comes from the Abbasid period. Right. So, so you know, like that is, uh, you know, these religions are always in flux and change. For example, we talk about Yazidis, right? One of the interesting theories I've read about Yazidis is that you know people talk about them as this kind of like pre-islamic sect uh there is a there are some scholars who argue that in fact yazidis were originally an ultra hardcore islamic sect who basically got chased up a bunch of mountains because in addition to killing crusaders they also started massacring oriental christians and the muslims were like yeah you shouldn't be doing that and it's only later that they became heretical they, they they came to adopt a whole bunch of uh beliefs that is regarded as heretical within islam so these these religions are often yeah druze I mean, is another similar, one so. there's a similar story that could be said of the Khmer rouge right that um they were uh, driven um into some inhospitable and very remote terrain and brutally traumatized by the uh, u.s bombing campaigns um against their joint positions with uh, um, the Vietnamese communists in Cambodia. And under those conditions, it's something that's very difficult for us to imagine, right? What happens when you and 40 of your closest comrades, co-religionists, brothers, whatever, buddies, um, are have just seen 100 of your closest buddies brutally killed by terrifying foreign enemies and now you're living in remote conditions you don't know what's going on in the rest of the world you're eating bugs what happens to the ideology that has sustained you and that brought you to that point and um, the ones that survive will get weird yep and then they're also very convenient to to funnel money to if you the u.s to fight the vietnamese but and you don't um, like glasses wearers yeah, so, like, so exactly. So we're all one, gone. One for three. Yeah, the <laughs> uh, I wear glasses too. Ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've actually I've seen people on Twitter use glasses wearers as an insult, which is kind of interesting. Is, are they are, are they like proto uh, super tankies? I call them super tankies. There's there's is it code for the, something else or is, is there it, a Khmer Rouge apologist? 
Like, I mean, yes, yes, there yes, are. There are Camaro yeah. apologists on that. Of all the people you're gonna, of all the communists you could possibly be an apologist, and they don't like the Vietnamese because they're revisionists. I mean, like out of all the communist regimes, like I have, like probably the Vietnamese, I have the most. They're like them and the Cubans. Them and the Cubans are like the most defensible. Yeah. Oh man! So one day I'm gonna have to like do a cargo cult study on what happens to uh, political ideas with people who are highly yeah, yeah. alienated. Adopt yeah. them on the internet. Cargo but... cult study or cargo <laughs> cult experiment. <laughs> well, I think we have an idea for, for a series. Gentlemen. Oh yeah. <laughs> Pol Pot wasn't based. Was... I think there are people who think Pol Pot was based. Pol Pot was the basis. Pol Pot was a was a coward and a bitch. Yeah, minimum. Um, uh, I mean, at least Stalin was personally courageous, but Pol Pot had very, very, very few redeeming qualities. And he spent his time fancying around Parry. And he um, he took money from the Americans and lived in a hammock. Yeah. So what I have learned. Is French communism plus mountains plus massacre equals CIA? <laughs> um, um, so, um, <laughs> all right, that's going to get comments. Um, so, I guess we, we've kind of tied down on Gellner, and we're going to, I think the next one we're going to cover is Hobbsbaum. Um, who I think actually deals with some of the things we we're talking about in the last half of this, where, about the invention and revigoration of tradition. And that's actually where my interest uh, from this was like literary studies around religion. Uh, that's sort of what my way, way back when I was an actual academic was about. Um, and uh, I found Hobbeswam really interesting because the whole once you get into invented tradition, you realize the whole category of religion is actually kind of a modern thing that like being able to say that as a, as a confessional belief set outside of a confessional belief set of a state of which you were embodied and have a community and social roles. And you don't even think of it as something you could adopt against. And when you do, you're actually actively um, rejecting your society in a way that we don't consider it. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, linguistic studies have indicated that like, the use the recuperation of religio for religion actually postdates the use of secular. Um, so we didn't really even start referring uh, to religions as religions, um, all that commonly, particularly other than Christianity, um, until we started talking about secularization. But yeah, um, yeah, neo tanky. Well, you know, to be fair. There are there are trot tankies. Tankies, tankies are tankies are actually revisionists because it was Khrushchev who sent in the tanks, right? So uh, tankies are actually revisionists who denounce Stalin. Can right. we can we just discuss about the fact that someone managed to convince the Stalinists that on on Twitter that uh, Yashov was photoshopped in. Yashov was photoshopped in because. <laughs> and that Stalin, Stalin doesn't fap. Mm. I'm pretty sure Stalin fapped. So, so I, I'm just, I, again, weird cargo cult dynamics here. But, but uh, 
Um, I, when people call themselves Marxist-Leninist, I no longer have any idea what the fuck they believe. It's really, it's, well, you know, Marxist-Leninists, like, it's like Bolshevik-Leninist or Leninist is usually a trot. Although right, they yeah, no, will yeah. call themselves a trot from time. They will call themselves trot. If you call a trot, if you call a Leninist a Trotskyist, they're not going to get too mad about it. Like, But the Stalinists really don't like being called Stalinists. They like to be called Marxist-Leninists. So I think we should respect their preferred noun. But don't. But also, <coughs> Khrushchevites and Brezhnevites and Maoists and everybody but Trotskyists are social democrats. Yeah, I mean, like, like I'm a Hodgerist, Enver Hodger. He's my man. <laughs> You're a Hodgerist. Oh I'm my god. I'm, 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 Juche Hodgerism. Juche Hodgerism. Exactly. It's, I mean, that's where it's at. We got to have that. We, we got to have more love. You are too beardy to be a Hodgerist. You are aware of that. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're more of a mountain Albanian. I assume. Let me just check when Enver Hodger was born. Enver Hodger. <laughs> Enver Hodger. There is a whole load of like Enver Hodger fans out there. So, you know, he fought the revisionists. That's for sure. When was he born? Okay. When was Enver Hodger born? Come on, Wikipedia. Does it not say on Wikipedia? He was born in 1908. Yes, he's named after Enver Pasha. He's literally named after Enver Pasha. Like, because Enver Pasha, there's a whole bunch of people in the Middle East called Niazi and Enver because they were the two heroes of the 1908 revolution in the Middle East, in, in the Ottoman Empire. So he is named after another great Middle Eastern leader, Enver Pasha, who bungled the invasion of Russia and murdered the Armenians for it. Well, to be fair... So Enver Hoja, however, I mean, Ho, it, it uh, would have executed you for saying that because you're beardy. I'm just well, yeah, want to remind you that that Albanian Islam. communist outlaw beard, <laughs> like, exactly. because it's a reactionary, a reactionary type of facial hair. See, Cooper <laughs> doesn't wear a beard. I am. Yeah. I, he only I'm only partially reactionary, and then Gene has just you're hedging. To be, no, to be the only thing in the middle is yellow stripes and roadkill. <laughs> well, what's his name? <laughs> Cooper only wears a beard when uh, he's been unemployed for like six months. <laughs> then, yeah, then, yeah, then he looks Cuba. like he's just come back from Siberia. Yeah. <sighs> well, on that note, we have stopped talking about Gellner. Next time, I think we're going to talk about Hob Swan. We don't know when. We'll, next time is not the next White Boy Wednesday. We do these nailing it down, uh, nailing it down supplements uh, once a month um white boy wednesday can be any number of things um so it could be um hushism. we should uh, we should do we, we should do a deep dive onto anvil hodja and uh discuss his uh fierce defense of the legacy of joseph stalin and his uh subjugation to the maoists yeah also the bunkers the it, it was like um central planning for fallout shelters crazy wise wise <laughs> wise given albania's situation it could get it from either side well so that, we, i mean that's that, that's fair um <clears throat> oh look 
we got a, a super chat. Thanks, JB. Really enjoying this series. Keep it up. Yep, these series do degenerate after we've talked about the subject because we will meander off uh, on different su subjects. But we've got a lot of people to cover. I hope we can, we'll cover Hobsbawm. I want to cover John Bruley. Anyone else we should cover, Kuba? Any other important theoretician? Eli Kadori. Um, sure. This, this is a little... Um, it's a little bit of uh, somewhat off theme, but I wouldn't mind um, a coda where we cover Kim Lichka and multiculturalism. Yeah, that would not be a bad idea, actually. Why not? And uh, who's the other um, Central uh, Central Eastern European modern scholar who has a name I can't pronounce? Miroslav Bosch. Um, yes, there you go. Miroslav Bosch is my guy, actually. That's the guy I use a lot of. Uh, I, I use a lot of his work. Him and John Bruley are the two main guys I, I, I use on nationalism. Yeah, because you had oh. me read him, and I was actually very. I was like, oh, this is actually kind of useful, and I haven't read it. Miroslav Bosch's newest book from Verso is really funny because he just like takes a big, uh, as Pascal will say, a big steaming dump on most of the theoreticians of nationalism saying that they're just writing words to get tenure basically kind of says like they're just talking bullshit and it's kind of like uh it's kind of like lame hosh is really good as well because although he points out his theory is only for europe uh it can be i think it can be quite well adapted to other parts of the world especially taken with the insights of combined uneven development and how you know things outside of europe don't necessarily go in the order that you might expect them in fact that's my uh, if anyone is in London in mid-April, I'm giving a talk at the LSE at a conference on Kurdish studies where I talk about combined uneven development and Kurdish nationalism and how Kurdish nationalism actually predates the emergence of a Kurdish political movement. Stay that's tuned a, for that one. That, that's interesting. Uh, the the Being only other... to Armenians does not constitute nationalism. <laughs> It does have it does have things to do with being dicks to I mean. so so uh this uh weird um ethnic uh detour aside, um the other other thing that I would add to the list that we didn't mention is I think we do have to, for our commie brethren's sake, uh cover the Otto Bauer Anton Panna Cook Stalin debate. I think we um, certainly do. I think definitely we need to we need we need to do a we need to do a uh a good cover on on, on that uh, maybe a couple of episodes on the on marks on the national question and then the second international debates on it and then uh, go into how it all degenerated with decolon uh, decolonization uh, and, and here's and one for everybody stalinism is not marxism it's a developmentalist project and it's a better developmentalist project than the liberals offer because you know they do it better. It's the reason the Asian developmentalist state exists. Even that, the non-Marxist ones tend to be. I mean, I mean, did the, Japanese, did, did the Japanese copy crypt some stuff from the five-year plans? Yeah. Uh, the anti-communist South Koreans True. did too, actually. Yeah. Exactly. And if you want to, if you want to uh, you know, if you want to develop your country. It's going to be messy, but they're going to get you there because look at look at China, look at India, look at Cuba, and look at Haiti. Where would you rather live? Cuba. 
Yeah, Cuba, definitely. <laughs> like, definitely wouldn't want to live in Haiti. Uh, you know. The uh, it's they don't, they don't have any. Yeah, tea. the um, the liberal developmental model doesn't work and has never worked. Yeah, it's yeah, like, uh, say, it's like we invented it because it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, precisely. That's that's why it's so popular. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's the only it's in fact <laughs> the only thing up. that could possibly uh, um, overthrow it would be a model that worked even less well. Yeah, like yeah, Stalinism is a means. Yeah, exactly. Because they kicked out the foreigners and didn't listen to them, they did a better job. Because the last thing you want to do. Like I'll give you a story. I was uh, I was at a development conference in Iraq a couple like maybe like ten years ago now, and they had this guy from the freaking State Department come and give a talk about agricultural development in Kurdistan, and he's sitting there telling us about like, well, you need to open up your agricultural market to uh, f uh, you know like to uh, international competition, and you need to remove subsidies. And I was like, that is literally not what you do in America. Right. It's like literally the opposite of what don't come here with your silly advice, which is like, which, you know, like the thing is, it's like it would do what we did when we were on top. But while you're not on top so that we have an advantage. At the game. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> like, come on, dude. It's like it's like shut your borders up. Don't pay the foreign loans back. Suck it up for a bit and then do a China and like or do know. a United States because that's what we did. Like I mean, after our revolution is exactly what or, we did. Like, or, I, mean, I mean, you can ju just look at the 1998 East Asian financial crisis. Mm -hmm. um, Malaysia was the one country that um, didn't let the bankers just take their money home and trash the entire economy. And I remember Mohammed Mahathir was uh, the economist, which was normally so proper and buttoned down and wholesome they they really got their blood up they he was hitler for them for like yeah, a year the money back. they were constantly prophesizing the utter meltdown of malaysia as economy and society and then the entire conversation just vanished five years out when it was clear that mahatir was right and everybody who took the economist's advice was uh, absolutely poisoned You've got to, you've got to, uh, you've got to play uh, chicken with him. You've got to say, "We're not going to pay it back." Do you want to send the gunboats in? Yeah, yeah. we like gunboats, right? Comfort, They're good go target practice for our uh, suicide bombers. Yeah, go for it, buddy. Go for it. Running amok. I believe that began either in the southern Philippines or in Malaysia. So Malaysia. Yeah, Malaysia, truly Asia. There you go. That's the advertising campaign. Didn't they try to do? Didn't they try and trump up some charges about Muhammad? Mahathir about him like doing some sodomy or something or no Mahathir tr um trumped Tried up to... some charges against Anwar Ibrahim okay Anwar yeah. Ibrahim who is shows it's it's fucking Shakespearean I actually would like to write a tragic play about Malaysian <laughs> politics um it's I won't get into it because I don't want to spoil opening night but um Malaysian fascinating Hamlet fascinating on a personal and uh, political level uh, so that's fun and that is all folks um go for it anything anything you want to say before we go yeah uh there's a lot of talk on stuff i'm doing a symposium on the strange death of trotskyism sometime in the next month with a bunch of 
former Trotskyist. Um, so you guys should look out for that. Uh, and we are going, we're going through <coughs> on the other nailing it down series. I'm actually going through all the sociological theories of class and the different sociological schools that are adjacent to Marxism that we've kind of forgotten about. But if you remember, make certain debates make more sense, like the German historical school uh, and people like that. Um, so if you're interested in basically scholarly arcana, but don't want to deal with it from boring ass universities, then you can come to my channel. Um, and uh, what are you guys doing on uh, <coughs> Boy Wednesdays? I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll think of something. All right. We'll, we'll think of something. And with that, I guess all there's left to say is we are out. Thank you.